0: Hi everyone, today is November 7th, 2019, welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, the University of Texas at San Antonio's Neurobiology Podcast. I'm your host, Salma Karashi. So today we've got Ajay Taka. Hi, Ajay. Hi. Is it Ajay or is it Ajay? Ajay.
1: Ajay? Either way works. Okay. I say it wrong all the
0: time. Oh, oh, okay, because I say way. Ajay, but you, just said, you had just said uh, Ajay. No, I grew okay.
2: up in the States. <laughs> yeah. I know, I know. Well, I'm in the know
0: <laughs> of the same people. Um, so uh, Ajay is Associate Professor in the Department of Biological Structure at the okay. University of Washington School of Medicine in Seattle. That's right. Is that right? Bi- department of Biological Structure. That's right. That's an
2: interesting... We're historically body. an anatomy
0: department. I see. That makes sense. Yeah. But now okay. we're
2: mostly in neuroscience
0: Got it. Okay. His lab studies the molecular basis of somatosensory perception using novel tools and techniques in combination with mouse genetics, molecular biology, biochemistry, and live cell imaging. His recent work looks at intersections in peripheral pathways that mediate pain and itch sensation using zebrafish larvae as a model system. Actually, not just peripheral pathways, I mean, in general, neural pathways. Yeah, I guess. So uh, today we've got a cozy group. It's just uh, me and Ajay and Lindsay McPherson. Hello. Hey. So by way of intro, can you talk to us about why the sensations of itch and pain have historically been considered so closely related, and just also in terms of like the general theories of, of how we think they're coded in the nervous system?
2: That is a good question. Yeah. Uh, I think mostly it's because they're both encoded by the same type of neurons, so small diameter the C fibers, right? right. Yeah. yeah. So they have the same structure, the same size, same conduction. Properties, and mm-hmm. I think uh, when you do early recordings and you record from C fibers and you get itch or pain, I think that led to this idea that pain was, a, or maybe it was before, maybe it was, I don't know the history of it, but you know, before modern neuroscience, people probably just thought of itch as a, a little subset bit of pain, thing, right? Yeah. And I think that biology sort of backed it up for, for a long time. Right? And I think molecular tools allow the dissection of these different pathways. I don't know if that's too quiet, right? Mm-hmm. So now, so now, yeah, and then de- de- identifying specific receptors for puritogens and separate pathways that help differentiate the two different types of neurons. I don't know. What do you think? Is that true, Lindsay? <laughs> sounds good. Yeah, I think so. It sounds good to me. Yeah.
0: So is it an intensity code or is it a population code, like two different sets of neurons that then have...
2: Well, I guess for have- I think for our rudimentary model, it's, I guess it's intensity coding via population, right? Mm-hmm. So you have selective recruitment based on intensity of stimuli. I think most typical itch in mammals is... Not intensity code, and it's driven by uh, specific activation of puritic receptors, or that respond to uh, specific chemicals that are uh, cause itch, right? And mm-hmm. that's leaving aside mechanical itch, which I think is it's a whole another type of itch that I don't understand oh. quite as well. What's like the, side of the, the difference? tickle? Yeah, like a tickle itch, right? If you have something crawling oh. on your skin, right, that well right. you'll itch, it, right? And right, right, right. you know, I think some of the researchers now they in the mouse they they couldn't really get mechanical itch behaviors, but except for now they can poke on the ear and you get a and, the, and you'll get a scratch behavior.
1: Is it because they have they're so hairy? I mean, like, and yeah, the ear like they, they don't, don't, don't have quite as much hair and so then you can get a little
2: yeah, maybe. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, maybe, maybe I have all the short hairs on yeah.
1: here. Or as you, I age I have if you more shaved more. or had nude mice, maybe if oh, I yeah, if maybe if you, it would you would would. try it if you could do a tickle assay in a in a nude mouse and you could get it to work or not.
2: Yeah. I mean I think differentiating a gra- you know, what's itch behavior? You know, it's all human defined, right? It's very subjective, I'd imagine. I don't imagine it is subjective. <laughs> but there, but there also these,
0: I mean, mechanistically there are these complicated interactions, right? So there's like this antagonistic thing where pain can inhibit itch, and then there's right. also these weird paradoxical things like like opioids can actually um, induce itch, right? I mean,
2: that's right, yeah. And I think that's because they're acting on specific spinal neurons, right? So I think what is it, the kappa kappa receptors? I almost get this backwards. So I probably shouldn't even say it, but yeah. All <laughs> right. Certain opioid uh, receptors will trigger when you activate or block. Well, uh, it's, 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 this is Sarah Ross's stuff. I think she's done a lot of it. Um, but so you right? So I think that's more central, not peripherally yeah. mediated, right?
0: Okay. So you have got this zebrafish model for studying pain and itch pathways and their intersections and interactions, right. and um,
2: Tell us about that. Well, I think we got into it because uh, as a postdoc, I studied cold sensation, uh, which is mediated mostly in mammals by mm-hmm. uh, but we almost thought there were other cold receptors out there. Um, and zebrafish don't have ortholog of trypamate, so they're sensing cold via a different mechanism. Mm-hmm. Um, and we thought we could just do a genetic screen and we'd find the cold receptor. <laughs> we did not. But in the, in the meantime, we sort of defined uh, uh, us and others, uh, maybe Alex Shear from Harvard, uh, were defining the populations of somatosensory neurons. So as we were doing this, I wanted to know, well, you know, is the zebrafish a good model system to study pain and the circuitry of pain? Are there different? subtypes of populations, because one of our worries was that maybe there's just one kind of uh, somatosensory neuron or nociceptive neuron in larval zebrafish, because maybe they just need rudimentary uh, sensation, just anything that could be dangerous, I need to avoid, and so maybe you could have one kind of neuron that responded to all the different noxious stimuli that a larval zebrafish might encounter. Uh, Fortunately, that turned out not to be the case, that they do have a divorce set of neurons, you know, within 48 hours. So I think, I don't know, maybe we've classified at least 10 different subtypes, mm-hmm. you know, at least by sub, by molecular marker uh, expression. So they seem to have this diversity of neural subtypes very quickly in development because these fish have to, within four days, survive in the wild. So they're functioning animals. So while they are developing into something, you know, into a mature zebrafish, they're not, it's not like they're just developing outside of the body and they don't have to do anything. They have to function and survive just like uh, the rest of us do. Um, so maybe that drove, that's really important, um, the development of nociceptors. And that was one thing we discovered is that as opposed to mammals, nociceptors just develop first in zebrafish. And then we believe maybe mechanosensors come on uh, later. So that seems like maybe that process has been inverted between uh, fish and terrestrial vertebrates. But it'd be interesting to look in reptiles or something, right? Yeah. But um, other non-mammalian. Yeah, some other non-mammalian system, and see where where it's switched. But I guess most of them they develop in egg, right?
1: And, yeah. Yeah. So, so they're, they're they're already fully not in, formed. Not they're yeah. not out in the environment. Yeah. No.
2: So yeah. Anything. So fish are sort of yeah they almost. Unique, I mean, I guess insects also have to, they're larval stages, but they're functioning animals, right? So right. they have to be able, do all the things needed to survive. Right. So I guess they're unique invertebrates that way, I guess, if you think about it.
1: <laughs> so like in the in the zebrafish, you, you do GCaMP imaging, you can see responses right. to pain. Have you seen cold responses in your trigeminals?
2: Uh, yeah, so yeah. we want to do that. We're going to do that, yeah. but we ha- we haven't done it for so do a variety it? of dumb reasons. <laughs> so, <'cause those laughs> Just
0: are to, all dissociated preps, right? They're no, really no, they're right? all they're, in, at, they're, they're all intact yeah. animals. Yeah. So
2: everything's done yeah. in a whole animal, okay. and then well, we can paralyze them so mm-hmm. we can we can isolate neural activity to whatever the stimulus is and whatever that motor response would be if they could move.
1: Right? How do you tell the motor response? Then we can't I
2: mean mean I mean I guess you could you could say what's a motor what's a motor part of the brain uh-huh. and what's being activated okay right so we can look at if we knew the anatomy better than we do but if we are other uh, other zebrafish neuroscientists uh-huh. could then maybe look at neuro, you know motor output yeah right so we can we can know just by circuitry what we think is a ferret input and then motor output you could sort of I think
1: that's input. an awesome system because I mean you can see.
2: Yeah, the it's neurons fantastic,
1: in right. vivo in, in an intact animal, right? Without you know having to open it up or do anything like what I have to do.
2: <laughs> yeah, so that's an advantage. I mean, and then the technology is marching forward in uh-huh. the mouse that I know. We don't never get entirely there, but we can record from a lot of neurons, and not myself, but uh, you know others uh, can uh, can do it. Yeah, so that's great. And then you can you know with a higher computer processing power now, you can just do GCaMP imaging on every single neuron. And you can do it fast enough um, that you can see, you know, if you believe GCaMP imaging is a true reliable indicator of neuronal activity, uh, you can see that all in real time. Yeah, so that would be sort of the perfect experiments, right? Where we do real time activity and then do all our manipulations. And we could even in the same fish, we could go through all the different temperatures and all the different stimuli And see what happens, right? So I think that's what we're moving towards. I think everyone's moving towards doing that kind of uh, research, right?
0: So, so what's what's kind of cool is that the readout in these animals that you found is is this thing that you discovered that fish itch and pain response is actually so different, like completely different. Or is that something that's been known?
2: No, yeah. We were the first ones to look at it. I think maybe because we were pretty the cool. first ones who cared about it. <laughs> yeah, but it's pretty interesting. I mean, because yeah, I thought like, it would just be a tool, right? Yeah. That we could then start labeling different circuits and seeing how they were wired up. Okay, right? so it, tell
0: us. Tell us what fish do when they're in pain versus when they're itching.
2: So you use this yeah, poetic exactly. agent
0: yeah, yeah. versus a pain agent, the mustard right. oil versus the, we,
2: the IM. If we inject it peripherally into their lips, uh-huh. um, they'll start rubbing. Or scratching their lips. I mean, so this is just what we're deciding that they're doing, right? Um, And versus a painful stimulus uh,
0: against the side of the tank is what we're not with their fins or something. Yeah, not with their fins. Yeah, we tried injecting
2: other places, but it was really difficult. And we tried um, putting objects in the tank that maybe they could rub against, but they were almost very fearful of of any object that we put in and so they'd freeze or they'd avoid it and then, well, I mean, I think we could have done other experiments where we tried to acclimate them and then do it, but we didn't want to do that. And, and it's ju- hard when, they, when yeah.
1: you have a, your, your time when, I guess you're doing these in adult fish, so yeah, you have so a little bit more time Yeah, time yeah so the adult fish,
2: the... we could do it. For the zebra, for the larva, we tried to put like sand, you know, in the in their little arenas to see if they'd rub around on it, but we couldn't, just take, they seemed too much to stay away from anything that was novel, um, so so we settled on this lip assay because people had done it previously for for painful stimuli, so they had seen that behavior before, and so we just wanted to see if we'd see something different, right? And luckily, so if you inject we
1: did. AITC in the lip, yeah. they just they just sink to the bottom. So that's they the difference. But they it's them.
2: concentration dependent.
1: Right? Uh uh-huh,
2: Yeah. So yeah. you know, depending on how you wanted to look at it, you could just say that you know. We decided it was scratch itching because it also, we saw the same effect in mice, right? But if we just, um, it could be just a different form of pain behavior.
1: Mild pain
2: versus... Right. I mean, I don't know. I can't say for sure. I'm just, <laughs> I use the transitive property <laughs> to say that, it, that it's probably, it looks like itch. We decide itch in mice looks like itch because we we observe them doing a behavior that we think is... Scratching and it must be elicited by itch compounds. And because the same puritics that cause us to scratch cause mice to scratch, right? So we say that must be itch sensation. Um, So I guess we're saying the same thing in zebrafish. Uh, For us, it was just really a tool to figure out what was going on in the mouse, too, right? And then so once we saw that we had the same, that our model held up in the mouse, then that helped us. Maybe call it itch, right? But we know it's itch. Well, I don't. Yeah, I, hate, I don't want to say that we know that it's itch in the mouse, but it looks a lot like itch. But in this, but the
0: agonist itself is some like LT receptor. I don't know what that receptor. It's is. It's a TLR seven,
2: a toll-like rec- So that's TLR seven is mostly, is expressed in immune cells, and so immune cells are a big driver of itch behavior because they can uh, dump histamine and serotonin and other things that cause uh, itch. And there was actually some controversy about the role of TLR7 and imicamod, which is the chemical that causes itch in our assay, uh, whether imicamod evoked itch was dependent on TLR7.
0: Right. And so what you guys found is that it directly activates these TRIP-A run right. channels, neural, right? was right. right. No,
2: so no, no. so we think there might be a role for TLR7 in mice that's upstream of neural activation. And so you can imagine the scenario where imicamod activated some... Some type of immune cell, and that led to the release of histamine, and that can activate a histamine receptor, and then you would get itch, right? But that would be an indirect pathway, whereas our pathway, and then whatever's happening in the zebrafish, is entirely dependent on trip A1 expressed in peripheral neurons, so...
1: So, yeah, so there's cool. a big there's a big difference right between the, these different types of itch right there's mm-hmm. like the immunopathic right. or, or yeah Historia, inflammatory yeah. itch and then this you know, direct right. neural activated itch pathway
2: mm-hmm. right and i think the most common is through immune
1: right Sensing, right? So, like if you get a bug
0: bite and yeah. you have this giant inflammation and you're itching it.
2: Yeah, our itch is kind of more of a trick.
0: It's a beautifully reduced prep that's all based around this TRIP A1 activator. Right. So you've got two agonists and two different, two, two agonists on this, this TRIP A receptor directly activating it, producing two totally different phenotypes. And I mean, that's, right. uh, and you've really harnessed that to. Yeah,
2: I think so. And I think it's interesting. I think it's like sort of from an evolutionary perspective how did itch arise right I don't think it was I don't think it, it arose at the same time as pain I think pain probably preceded it and then itch arose somehow right and it probably needed to become more specialized uh, in terrestrial animals
0: yeah, so like, it, what, what is the adaptive? Uh, nature of this. this so, mechanical is you can imagine you just have to get something off of you, right? Because there's something crawling on you. Right. But this sort of thing, it's like something you've been pricked by a thorn that has some chemical on it, and then you start activating your immune system by scratching around it and causing. I mean, like, what yeah. is the. Is there some. Like, how does that bear itself out? Does that speed healing? Does it speed?
2: I don't know. I think it makes it worse, right? So yeah. you're not supposed to scratch right. it. So it's actually like a maladaptive yeah. <laughs> of yeah. sensation, right? For removing parasites, yeah, that's very important to like to do that. But why have this chemical derived itch? Yeah, I don't know if there's a good answer, right? And then there's Probably people that, that, that have system. like
1: extreme itch. Yeah. reactions that like, makes their lives miserable. Yeah, if you have atopic dermatitis,
2: right, mm-hmm. chronic, yeah, you get chronic itch, and it, yeah, it's it's horrible, right? Mm-hmm. In some ways, maybe it's worse than chronic pain, I don't know. They're probably e- equally horrible. But, yeah, both but, bad. Yeah. <laughs> They're both, whole, you know, <laughs> terrible conditions for those uh, that suffer from them, right? So, so if you could find a way to prevent it, that would be um, amazing, right, for most people. So I, th- I think a lot of the itch efforts have been focused on immune system, right? But if you could silence the pure receptors somehow, then that'd be another way of doing
1: it. Because then if you have... I guess I mean, there's, there's the two pathways. So it's like the whole like, receptor and the, the purinergic activation on the the neuron itself. right? Um, and but, but in mouse, right, you were able to get rid of about half of it and you're thinking maybe there's toll toll-like receptor is still activating. So the, potentially. Potentially, right? right. But then, so, like, yeah, so if you found a, a drug that treated that purinergic receptor, do you think that it would, it would still be able to, like, prevent you from getting the inflammatory portion or it would just be stuck with the inflammatory portion without the neurons, like, kind of initial...
2: Activation. Yeah, maybe, but maybe it would resolve quicker. Quicker, yeah. Right, because I think then you get neurogenic uh, contributions back to the inflammation. So right. Sort of like I know because then they then they start experiment.
1: then they start releasing all the you know inflammatory <laughs> right. soup stuff. Which is
2: nice, Right. Yeah, I think a lot of this. I think it all, for me, a lot of it was the sort of label line that sort of led me, you know, into looking at these different subsets of neurons, right, to see how, to get the idea of how, how are different modalities wired up to the brain, right, and for zebrafish, if everything was the same, that was going to make it difficult for, for us, was that, that was really sort of drove identifying different populations, so but we then, haven't made but, that step
1: but, yet. But yeah, but then now you're still kind of like, you're, you're like halfway there, but then there's this, yeah, trick, it's that. right. That yeah. It's, it's both a one. Yeah,
2: so we can Yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> so then it it throws
2: a. So monkey, we have to right? find other markers. Anyway. Yeah,
1: right. So, so do, do you think that do you think there is like a molecular, uh, kind of code that will separate out your two populations of you know your your low your low threshold.
0: Uh, itchy guys and the right. high threshold pain guys. Yeah, I don't think so it's... Sto- it, I don't, know, should, we should probably talk a bit about the threshold. But anyway, go ahead and uh-huh. answer that and then we'll, go, we'll backtrack a bit
2: to the... Yeah, I don't think it's stochastic,
0: right? Mm-hmm. It doesn't make
2: sense for it to be stochastic. Right. Why should you have randomly tuned neurons? That doesn't make sense. So, because how could that be helpful? I mean, you, or... right? So I think they're tuned for a reason. And if we look in zebrafish, if we label trip A1 neurons, and look at their, how they innervate the body wall, we see classes of trip one expressing neurons that tile. So their afferents repulse each other if they don't have any overlap. And then we see other neurons, other trip A1 expressing neurons that completely overlap. Oh, that's really with interesting. So we are trying to figure out how many different populations there are and how they're tuned. So we can take this, the same fish that I talked about, that expresses this neural activity marker, Campari, which photo converts from green to red uh, when it's active. And so if you instead of looking at the cell bodies, which I showed in my lectures, and you look at the afferents, uh, you can see red afferents overlapping, green afferents from different neurons. It's really difficult to do. (laughs) So uh, getting the numbers and we're making Trying to make new transgenic lines with brighter Campari so we can we can see it. Um, but yeah, so because what you really care about is what's going on in the periphery, right? And what's being active. And the zebrafish, all their afferents, they shoot out of the trigeminal ganglia and then they display out right on the surface of the skin. So they all target the same place. So they're not targeting uh, different areas of the fish, we can see where they're all targeting. So it's not like some are deeper mm-hmm. than other. They're they're all at the basically at the same level. So they're all getting the same input. And that was the only way that it made sense to me. That you'd, if they were in the, the along the other way, if yet they couldn't be just you know innervating separate parts of the fish. Right? Do you have an itchy part of the fish right. versus a pain?
1: Right, so, so then right. you would predict, right, that you would only get overlap within within the itch plus the pain, but not right. pain on pain and not itch on itch, right? But
2: now I think there must be pain on pain. Pain too. on pain too? Yeah, right, because the, the, the itch is like at one extreme, right? And then I have all these other neurons that have different response properties to our painful stimuli. So why is that? Why do you have, what if we said like the itch neurons were like the 5% you know, So why do we have spread across the other 95% of the neurons? Um, so then I think the intensity of pain coding is also a population question. And which, is,
1: which always made me interested, like back in the Patipudian lab, right, when we had the subpopulation of of TRIP A1, TRIP V1 double positive DRG neurons, and then another population that were TRIP one alone, not TRIP A1, right. like, what are they doing differently? Um, and what does that, like, what does that give you? I mean, the TRIP A1 gives you ability to detect all these really kind of noxious compounds in general. Right. TRIP V1 is much more sensitive to heat and, you know, few compounds. So is it, is it only p- hot plus pain, or is it, is it trip A1 yeah. the only pain neurons, or is it some weird yeah, combination of all the I think the ones that have
2: multiple receptors on it are just general polymodal nociceptors. Yeah. So their sensation is pain. I think the, some of the trip B1 ones could just be temperature. Temperature, yeah. Right, yeah. and so that's a different modality, right? So Because why, why would you have all these different receptors that signal... Because you, you could have cold receptors expressed with V1, too, and right, a heat receptor. It only makes sense to me that the output is just the same output, it's just pain, right? So... and then the other neurons are modifying that experience. So you know something's hot and painful because you're activating some neuron that only responds to the heat part, and then you have other neur- neurons that respond to the pain, right? And that drives the pain feeling. And cold pain is the opposite. But the burning part, I think, is the same. Right, that right. burning, painful sensation is maybe the same. So it's the it's the additive properties, is what I think gives you discrimination, maybe. And but yeah, so but then why have all these different two neurons? I guess you could have different parts of the bodies that are different, have different sensations. But even in the mouse, if we label all the neurons that innervate the paw, we get the same spread. So. We see it in vivo in zebrafish, and we see it in vitro in mouse, and maybe the in vitro part of the mouse is, that's an artifact, but it's a consistent artifact. So it seems like there's, has, there's something different about those neurons and other ones. So now we're trying to do it in vivo, right, with uh, like an in vivo trigeminal prep, uh, so we can look at activity in an intact mouse, right, and then we can see if we see the same intensity spread And then we can see whether the different signaling pathways contribute to that spread. Or if it's just something like the number of channels, right? It could be anything, right? It could be the number of channels. It could be the gain set by signaling pathways. It could be the number of sodium channels and potassium channels and chloride channels. Whatever said uh, determines the resting membrane potential. Any of the things that might contribute to sensitization right, could be different. We don't know. We're trying to figure it out.
1: But you think it's PLC?
2: I think PLC is part of it. Yeah, right? I don't think it's the only thing. Like, <laughs> why would you have neurons that have a 600-fold difference in expression of trip A1? Right. But it's the same for all receptors. If you look at trip B1, or MRGD, or even if you look at some sodium channels, they're different. Right. I think a long time ago people would just say it's stochastic. That doesn't make sense. <laughs> I don't know why. Is that either, that's not a good answer. I don't know <laughs> what that means. But I don't know what it, I don't know if that difference in RNA translates into a difference in protein, right? So I guess I'd be figuring that out too. But I don't think any of these things are accidental.
1: Yeah. And yeah, then, like, what's what's controlling that overexpression or, yeah, or exactly. underexpression? Right. Those yeah. Specific exactly. And what are
2: the, yeah? Why are they coding? Right. Yeah. But then, why would you want to have differently tuned receptors? unless it's some way of, of encoding intensity, right? I think in the auditory system, so spiral ganglion neurons, they can be tuned to the same frequency, but you have ones that respond at different intensities. I think it might just be a common uh, motif that's replicated across uh, the sensory nervous system,
1: maybe got to check my taste cells. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, right. How do you, how
2: is the intensity of taste, right? Exactly. It's weird.
1: Yeah, we don't like at the at the ganglion level, you really get very little difference in intensity if you use, you know, a huge amount of sucrose or very little amount of sucrose. If it's enough to like trigger the taste receptor cell, right. you don't get a whole lot of different like there's not that much recruitment of more neurons. There's not much like variation in the you know the G responses are pretty stable with right. in different dose responses. So doing a dose response in the ganglion is almost like futile. <laughs> you know, like right. it's like you don't get much. But we obviously have the ability to tell the difference between a low dose of sucrose and a high dose of sucrose. Right. So if something's happening, I just don't know what it is. Right.
2: Yeah. Are you using what kind of G Camp are you? Using fast? Six slow yeah, so maybe you switch to six, six fast, six fast yeah. right? And then you might be able That's to the see. the
0: difference? So you temporal.
1: Yeah, path. you can you can see a little bit more of like the, the temporal dynamics with slow. You just let it, you know, it just meanders its way back down, so it, it doesn't right. release the. So it's calcium. really good
2: for seeing signals.
1: Yeah. Right. And Because it. it's kind of like additive. Because it it, right. it 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 they'll accrete up onto the the G camp, and more calcium will bind, and you'll get a larger signal. But the off rate is fairly slow. With right. the fast, the off rate is quick, so you you don't end up binding as much calcium, but you'll be able to see if there's more or less...
2: The theory, you can see yeah. the so same rate it, of
1: action potentials, right? Theory. Yes,
2: right. There's a, there's a
1: seven now? I don't know. Yeah, there's a, really a seven. Like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think there's a seven. Right. It's already the cute That's right.
2: <laughs> yeah, by the time you've made your animal...
1: It's it's, it's,
2: it's, uh, it's
0: two already right. two, <laughs> it's two generations gone.
2: <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, you can only do what you can do.
0: Hmm. Okay, so you want to talk about some um, drug discovery using zebrafish, small molecule screening, and desensitization, oh, right, yeah, right, yes. acid, thermal preference? Right,
2: so we decided that, um, that analgesic discovery is a big problem, um, and there hasn't been very many, or maybe zero, good uh, target directed analgesics development. So we knew what the receptor was or knew what the target was. We made a drug against it and then it worked in humans. right? I think there's been some notable failures uh, like uh, I guess the NGF receptor right and then analgesics extracted towards trip one Though maybe those might actually work but nothing's come uh, uh, to the forefront yet. And so we decided that well, we knew that our best analgesics were uh, discovered by their properties in humans. So humans found opioids, and they found NSAIDs by eating different plants, right? And it relieved their pain, and they had no idea what the target was. They just knew it worked, right? So, and those are still our best analgesics. Um, But we knew that You can't conduct these kind of experiments in, say, a mouse model because you don't have enough animals, and you don't have enough people, and you don't have enough money, right? And so it's really impractical. But in zebrafish, they're tiny, they're small, they're vertebrates. They have a fully functioning nervous system that looks a lot like ours, um, but obviously different, Um, and we can screen lots of them at any given time, and so we wanted to develop a Preference assay, so we wouldn't just be looking at locomotor behavior. So um, we wanted to know that whatever they were avoiding, if we found an analgesic, would lessen, right? And so they were making a choice, right? And that's a big hallmark of uh, sort of a good nociceptive assay in a mouse versus, or for any drug development where the animal has to make a choice versus just some locomotor uh, behavior because that it indicates superspinal processing, right? And so uh, the brains are involved. Um, and so in zebrafish, we just de- de- uh, devised the simple choice assay based on, uh, we'll just be for simplicity's sake, uh, a an noxious temperature versus their rearing temperature. And then with this assay, uh, we showed that analgesic drugs, known analgesic d- drugs uh, reversed, reversed it. So we were pretty certain we were looking at a nociceptive assay that could be useful for uh, finding molecules with analgesic properties. Whether they be purely analgesic, we didn't know that, but we know they did have that. Um, so um, what we did in a pilot study was screened a 10,000 compound library, which seems like a lot, but in drug discovery, 10,000 compounds is basically virtually nothing. right? In, in drug discovery and in industry, you're... you're uh, Surveying millions of compounds, but you're often doing this brute force. Yeah, it's a brute force, and you do, and you, but you're doing it in, in a cultured cell or something, so something really easy uh, to assay. But here we're assaying a uh, behavior, and I think we could scale it up to millions of compounds if someone had the energy and the desire to do such a thing. But we did the 10,000 compound screen, uh, it's easy because you just Deliver the drugs in their water, so you don't have to inject them. You just put them in their water, and they go. And they're systemic, and they're systemic, so they go everywhere. So the whole zebrafish gets exposed to the drug, and so you'll know if it'll kill the zebrafish mm-hmm. or do any of these other things. And you can see if it affects their behavior, and you can track their locomotion and where they go. Right, and so from doing a ten thousand compound screen, we identified three compounds that seem to have replicated. Uh, their effects that have analgesis, so and we're pretty sure that this technique could work. Whether any of these compounds would ever be useful, uh, we don't know that yet, but one of them that we found out, followed up on, has, uh, has analgesic properties in the mouth, so we think this will work. Um, and then one of the compounds that we found that we were really interested in seems to actually reverse. Their preference, so that our fish now prefer the noxious heat over the rearing temperature, which we think is really strange but sort of really interesting um, that it's having this effect, suggesting that their circuits, and I think many people say in the dopamine field (laughs) knew about this all along that there's maybe valence centers uh, in the brain, and so this drug can somehow modulate one of those uh, centers to. reverse how they, their preference, right? And But it's doing this across multiple uh, modalities, not just uh, pain, but also uh, anxiety-inducing versus, versus non-anxious environments. It makes them go to the anxiety-inducing environment, uh, too, which is really interesting, right? So uh, right now, we're trying to identify the target and, uh, understand how it's how it's working right and so we have some ideas but i think they're too early to to discuss
0: do you see these anxiolytic changes with this molecule in mice you've been doing any of that because that's uh, fairly easy to
2: yeah it is easy to do well yeah we are doing it I've been talking to a lot of people about it, and mm-hmm. the, a lot of people have different opinions about how easy these assays are. Mm-hmm. To. I thought they were really simple; you just put them in open field, and if they go to the yeah, exactly. they go to the middle, then we found it. But uh, I, there are some investigators who who don't think open field is quite that simple. Um, but yes, we are doing the, and assays. the first pass. Yeah, right? we're doing it as a first pass, and we're doing some other assays, and maybe we'll do some light dark boxes. We can do the same assay. And, uh, mice and that should be pretty easy That's so great. as long as we get the timing right I think sh- we'll find out if it, if it works right so um, we're pretty excited about that so yeah. so if that works fingers crossed and then we, we ID the target then we'll be we'll be in good shape
0: okay super thank you for joining us Ajay Taka
2: yeah thank you for having me it's been fun
0: yeah great this has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop Okay, <laughs>